This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to Advisory Opinions. I'm David French with David Latt. And David, this is a momentous recording. This is your last time as sort of official guest, guest host. Like if I'm if I'm like the guest host, I don't know. It's all complicated because I'm frequent guest, right? And you're frequent guest host. So this is your last time as frequent guest host, but certainly... Certainly not your last time on this podcast. It's been a joy. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I've really had a great time. And I'm really grateful to you and Sarah for the opportunity to appear on the podcast and connect with the wonderful AO listenership. And I am always game for coming back. So don't forget me. (laughs) Oh, we definitely will not. And although I have to say that I do have a little bit of just a tiny dash of bitterness because similarly with Sarah, whenever I run into AO fans out, you know, in, in the, in the world, they will always say, I absolutely love advisory opinions. Sarah is the best. (laughs) And then, so then I've had this phenomenon where I love advisory opinions and David is just great. (laughs) Wait, what am I, a potted plant? (laughs) Uh, But I have had so many people uh, come up to me and tell me how much they have enjoyed your presence on the podcast and that you've just been uh, a, a real pleasure to listen to. And I couldn't agree more. I've listened to, I do quality control. I go back and I listen to podcasts and I, it's been, you know, it's just been great having you and we really appreciate it. Yeah. Again, my pleasure. My pleasure. I was very nervous. I have to confess because Sarah leaves big shoes to fill, but I guess I've survived. Well, hopefully nothing I say today will betray terrible ignorance or get me canceled. <laughs> so we're in the home stretch. Let's wait on the survival declaration. You know, we've got about 55 to 65 more minutes. Um, well, this is going to be a First Amendment podcast. Um, there have been just an array of First Amendment decisions on hot button issues. Um, everything from academic freedom to online speech to drag queens to book censorship and regulation. My goodness. Okay. So here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about a Fifth Circuit case involving a teacher and academic freedom. We're going to be talking about another case out of Texas involving uh, ratings for library books. We're also going to talk about another case out of Texas 
involving drag queens. And I'll be walking us through that one since, you know, the free speech of drag queens is my brand. And then we are going to talk about a California injunction against a sweeping California law involving the regulation of children's access to internet content, which is fascinating. If we've got time, I want David to talk about this. You know, we've talked about it a little bit before, but he had a really interesting Substack newsletter uh, about Judge Newman, who I think, I mean, you can fact check me is uh, 3,000 years old and <laughs> is, and there's a big fight over whether she can remain on the bench. And, and David wrote some really interesting stuff about that. Uh, so we'll walk through that if we've got time. But let's get started and we'll just kind of go with the highest court that we'll be talking about. So the Fifth Circuit, and then we've got a bunch of district court stuff after that. But the Fifth Circuit case, uh, really interesting, David. You want to walk us through that one? Yes. So this is a case, um, the, the Jackson case, Jackson v. Wright. And this was a dispute arising out of a controversy that you might have heard about, I think, in 2020 or 2021. It involved a professor at the University of North Texas by the name of Timothy Jackson. He's a music professor. And there was a heated controversy in musicology circles, basically about racism in the world of music. Wright was the faculty advisor of a rather obscure musicology publication, the Journal of Schenkerian Studies, Schenker being this, I guess, eminent, but also perhaps racist music theorist, uh, long dead, I believe. Wait, t- time out. T- oh, David, sorry. Are you, are you saying that, no, I'm not saying time out, like pause the recording. I'm just, <laughs> I'm saying time out in are you saying the Journal of Shankarian Studies is obscure? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, really uh, shocked to hear that it has a distribution apparently of 30, as in three zero. That makes <laughs> the Harvard Law Review look like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, Tom Clancy or something like that. Is it? But it, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I had the thought, I guess this quip isn't necessarily by him, but it's often attributed to Kissinger that, Academic politics are so vicious because the stakes are so small. And so this dispute over this journal and whether this uh, theorist was long dead was racist. Um, There was a black professor who condemned him. And then there were a bunch of professors who rallied to his defense. And one of them, I guess, was Timothy Jackson, who has devoted his life's work in large part, I think, to uh, this uh, Schenker uh, fellow. And so what happened was there was this big to-do a couple of years ago, and the upshot was Jackson was removed from his involvement with this journal, which he actually founded. And so he was very upset over this. And there were also various accusations that Professor Jackson was racist. So what ended up happening, of course, was litigation. And Jackson was investigated by the university, and he was removed from his involvement with the journal. So he sued eight members of the University of North Texas Board of Regents, claiming that the actions they took against him, investigating him, removing him from the journal, constituted First Amendment uh, retaliation because they didn't like some of the things he wrote about Schenker and in response to the black professor who uh, criticized Schenker. And in this 10-page, pretty short opinion, I mean, it could have almost been unpublished, but maybe the nature of the controversy made them publish it. In a pretty short opinion, Judge Oldham rejected the defendant's claims that, one, they enjoy sovereign immunity. University of North Texas is a public institution. And two, 
Professor Jackson lacks standing. So this case will proceed, and we will be hearing, I guess, more about the Journal of Shankarian Studies. The world needs more of the Journal of Shankarian <laughs> Studies. And, you know, the only reason that I paused is because, you know, we had uh, a great interview with the person from Ad Fontes Media who had us really high on the fairness rating, right? And I, I just wanted to make sure that we were being fair to the journal. And I think coming forward immediately with facts that say that it's 30 subscribers, three zero, yes. I think, I think obscure. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to jump to conclusions. Yeah, you know, you're going to see a theme here, uh, or you'll hear a theme, listeners, as we walk through these cases. It, each one of the First Amendment cases that we're going to walk through is an, spawned by some kind of panic um, and some sort of frenzy. And what was really interesting was looking at the um, date when all of this began to unfold was July of 2020, which is sort of the height of the racial reckoning in the summer of 2020, which, as if you walk back in that time, had many good aspects and it had many excesses. And one of the excesses of the movement was there was a period of time where there was, um, I guess the best phrase was a hunt for heretics. And, and it was essentially, it wasn't just that people were increasingly sensitive to subtle forms of racism, it's that people became immediately punitive, immediately punitive. And so that rather than having a discussion about and a debate and a dialogue about the nuances of various opinions, and uh, we began to see uh, that there is a party line. And if you have been called out, you are to take your punishment. Um, you, you are to comply, you are to take your punishment. We've seen many Examples of this, one of my favorite uh, columns written sort of during that time was by Yasha Monk, and it was in the Atlantic, and it was called Stop Firing the Innocent. And it really kind of captured some of the zeitgeist at that moment. And I think it's a, it's a mathematical equation almost at this point, uh, David, which is when you have a panic, First Amendment litigation follows. Yes. <laughs> it's been this way ever since the modern advent of the First Amendment. Uh, and, and we're going to see this again and again and again. But I'm with you. This is interesting that they chose to publish this very short opinion. Um, and it also seemed just very simple and straightforward. I will point out that the controversy did generate national attention. There was a New York Times article about it in 2021 by Michael Powell. And this became very heated. In case you're curious, the theorist is Heinrich Schenker. He died in Austria in 19... 19- 35, according to the Times piece. And the professor who called him out in 2019 was Philip Ewell, who is a black music theory professor at Hunter College. And it was Professor Jackson who somewhat came to the defense of Schenker, pointing out that he was, uh, for example, someone who was uh, the grandson of Jewish emigres. And uh, I'm sorry, that's Professor Jackson. Professor Jackson is the grandson of Jewish emigres who had lost many relatives in the Holocaust. And he also pointed out that I believe um, Schenker uh, was also uh, no privileged white man. This is from the Times article. He was a Jew in pre-war Germany. And so again, um, you can see uh, what you were just talking about, David, uh, even though the 
Even though the initial call-up by Professor Ewell happened in 2019, the controversy bled into 2020 and 2021. And as you were just discussing, these were times of uh, peak controversy over these matters of identity and um, oppression and what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you say, and I, I just want to go ahead and lay this out there again for some people might be new listeners because we, we've been thankfully growing uh, in our listeners pretty remarkably. So um, in, this, in this podcast, we talk about free speech a lot. And we will defend the free speech rights of people that we disagree with. I'm not adjudicating the dispute over Shankarian racism. <laughs> I do <laughs> not know if Shanker was racist or not. But one thing that I do know from many years of practice is that offering a defense against charges of racism is a pretty much textbook First Amendment protected speech. And so, you know, regardless of the underlying merits of the charge against Schenker, the debate about it, both pro and con, is constitutionally protected speech. So if you had punishment based on the allegation of racism, that would implicate the First Amendment. If you have punishment based on the defense against racism, that would implicate the First Amendment as well. And the fact that someone is a public university professor does not mean that they are drained of their First Amendment rights simply because they're a public employee. There is now a considerable amount of jurisprudence that says that professors enjoy academic freedom rights and are treated differently from other public employees, say, such as in the um, uh, the Spallis case in the, in the Supreme Court, which held that most public employees, when they're speaking in their official capacity, do not have First Amendment rights. But in the context of teaching and scholarship, the uh, the Supreme Court ref- did not make a similar holding and sort of left it to the lower courts to flesh out. And the lower courts have protected the academic freedom rights of professors. So that's just some background because we're going to dive into some other hot button stuff. And you might say, oh, well, you love that speech or you love that speech. No. We're talking about speech and constitutional protections. So with that background, David, do you want to take us into the wonderful world of library books? (laughs) (laughs) So this is the case of Book People, Inc. v. Wong. Some of you may be familiar with Book People. It is a beloved independent bookstore in Austin, Texas. I'm sure Sarah could probably say a lot more about it than I can. And this case involves a Texas law concerning books uh, in uh, public school libraries. And the statute is, uh, again, I think Zach on the last podcast, my husband Zach talked about, you know, all the clever and perhaps annoying acronyms. This statute is the READER Act, which stands for Restricting Explicit and Adult Designated Educational Resources, or uh, HB 900. And this statute was passed uh, earlier this year, and it is about categorizing books in, uh, er, uh, into, I guess, two uh, buckets, if you will. One is sexually explicit. One is sexually relevant. Sexually explicit books are banned from public school libraries. The sexually relevant ones are subject to very res- various restrictions. What's tricky about this statute and what kind of one of, there are multiple First Amendment issues in this statute. One issue here is 
The statute actually requires booksellers who are selling into the public schools to do an initial rating or review of the books they are selling. Uh, and then uh, what is uh, kind of interesting is the state uh, is then free to change the rating of any book uh, and uh, it can then uh, present that uh, rating uh, where it will look like uh, they can they can post that uh, bookseller's list, and there's no necessary sort of footnote or asterisk saying, well, um, you know, this wasn't the bookseller's rating; this was the state's rating. Uh, there's an issue about how to administer this law because uh, apparently there are uh, something like six million items in just six school districts alone. Another issue uh, besides this sort of compelled speech issue relating to the rating of the books is it, it is hard to figure out what the standards are. That's a recurring theme in First Amendment jurisprudence, just is something too vague uh, or unclear. And the booksellers who are doing this rating before they can sell into the libraries um, have to determine whether it is the material is uh, patently offensive. Um, and there's a lot of other language along those lines to uh, sort of figure out whether the book is painfully offensive. They have to conduct this uh, contextual analysis. Um, and it's very hard when you look at the law to sort of figure out what books might or might not be covered. And there are a lot of other issues, but uh, maybe that's enough to set the table for now. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on your childhood memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos. So it's the gift that keeps on giving. And to be clear, every mom in my life has this frame. Every mom I've ever heard of has this frame. This is my go-to gift. My parents love it. I upload photos all the time. I'm just like bored watching TV at the end of the night. I'll hop on the app and put up the photos from the day. It's really easy. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code advisory at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Wow. This is this case is really something else. And I, I just want to pull back and provide more context again. So if we're talking about this uh, previous controversy, which unfolded its original seeds were like 2019 and the University of North Texas case really gets rolling in 2020 and 2021. Uh, that was, again, put your mind back into, uh, put yourself back in that context. There was a lot of frenzy and a lot of anger. Um, now, this case, this case is born out of the frenzy and anger over library books and schools. And we have talked about this quite a bit um, on this podcast, the frenzy around library books. And most of this has focused on 
when can a school board, or most of the controversy has been more local and focusing on when can school boards yank books from shelves? And the answer to that question is surprisingly vague. There is a Supreme Court case called PICO that essentially says, well, yeah, I mean, school boards have lots of discretion, but it's not unlimited. For example, you couldn't take every Republican book off the shelves or every book by a black author or and that there is this sort of right to receive information that exists. But we're not saying you can't curate your collection. We're just saying there's guardrails. And that's when that's most of the controversies. This is not that. <laughs> this is something very different. This is saying, okay, publishers, you have to rate your book. And without real guide, clear guidelines as to how you're going to rate it, and then if we don't like the rating, we'll re-rate it for you. And uh, and then the standards here for how this is all implemented are deeply confuse, confusing. And I, I'm going to, rare, there's a few times, David, when I just feel like to analyze a case, I'd really just like to read out loud a long piece. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. But there's a tremendous substack about this decision by Chris Geidner. And we'll put that in the show notes. And what he does is he really pulls out some of the key elements here. So here you had a law that was about to go into, uh, that was about to start being enforced. And here's a interesting part of the opinion. So the court says, generally, the government was confused and unaware of how the law would actually function in practice, even though the hearing was mere days before it would go into effect. There are approximately 40 instances during the August 18th hearing where the government either did not know how the law would function or did not have an answer as to what the effects of certain provisions were. And then he points out a couple of salient examples. So, for example, the judge says on enforcement, who would enforce the law? Answer, that's a good question. A good question <laughs> that I don't know that anybody has thought that through yet. Okay. On when and why the Texas edu Education Agency would change ratings. Quote, I haven't thought that through yet. I think this is still being worked out because this is a new bill. On whether there is no appeal from the TEA's ratings changes. I believe that's correct, Your Honor. I haven't thought that through, but I do believe that's correct. On whether booksellers could seek relief if they're harmed under the law. Well, Your Honor, maybe the answer is they can't. Okay, that, there's nothing super legally interesting here because... If you're walking in with answers like this, just pro tip for young lawyers, you're losing. How would we enforce it? I don't know. Standards, hmm, not so sure. Right to challenge, don't really know. Um, you're just, you know, and, and I'm not faulting the lawyers because if the law is that poorly drafted, they've got to work with what they've got to work with. But again, here's the theme, David, in the middle of these panics, state agencies Either state entities either do things like University of North Texas or state legislatures pass things like this law that may have, may as well have been written in crayon. It's so bad. And, and then when you challenge it, like if you're someone who's saying on social media or you're writing a piece saying, whoa, wait a minute, this is a bad law. The answer is, oh, you must really not care about protecting kids from porn. Yes. <laughs> what, 
wait a minute, no, actually, I really care about the First Amendment and I do care about protecting kids from born. How do we, how do we handle both of these things? And then they don't care. They just plow through and they pass it. And then the answer is, you know, see you in court. You're going to have to learn the hard way. And it's really frustrating how much we've seen this play out over the last two, three, four years. You know, one thing I would point out, and Chris in his excellent Substack post does a good job of highlighting this, is the judge makes clear that he is not basically saying, oh, you can give, you know, third graders playboy or or something like that. Because I think that's sort of the straw person that always gets introduced here. As you were just saying, David, oh, you don't care about the children. So this is an excerpt from Judge Albright's opinion. Again, the court expresses no opinion on the scope of the power of a state to create a system where a state agency rates the sexual content of books that will be purchased by public school libraries. Nor does the court express an opinion on the scope of the power of a state to utilize a rating system determining whether to purchase a book or not for its libraries. Uh, The issue here, though, is how do you go about deciding what books make it into public school libraries? And here, because of the vagueness of the standards and the compelled speech problem in terms of the ratings, this particular Reader Act does not pass muster. One other thing I'll point out, the judge here, uh, Judge Alan Albright of the Western District of Texas, I know that people can question or argue over how relevant these things are, but he is an appointee of President Trump. And the other thing I would point out, just fun fact for those of our readers who are in the intellectual property space, they may already know of Judge Albright because he is sort of a guru of patent law. And because of various procedural things, et cetera, at one point he had a massive chunk, something like a quarter of all patent uh, cases in the United States, partly because people loved filing in the Western District of Texas because it was perceived as plaintiff-friendly, and Judge Albright also moved things very quickly and I think didn't dismiss patent holder claims uh, too quickly, and so it was very popular. They had to basically rejigger the system because there were also some complaints that too many cases were going to Judge Albright and the Western District. But anyway, uh, this is not a, he is not a cultural warrior judge. His main expertise is IP law. Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting when we look at a lot of these laws where you're, targeting library books or you're targeting uh, drag queens, which we'll get to in a minute, or you're targeting um, professor speech, we're seeing a remarkable unanimity with the exception of what that we'll get to in a minute on from Obama appointees, from Trump appointees, from Bush appointees. I mean, you go down the line that these laws targeting specific kinds of speech are unconstitutional. And it's it's just across the whole spectrum, which David, I think is worth highlighting because that was my experience in my legal career. So I spent 21, 20 plus years litigating First Amendment cases. Even when I was in law school, I volunteered on a couple of cases to help research. And the truth of the matter was, especially at the district court level, the Appoint the identity of the president who appointed the judge was basically irrelevant to the outcome of the case. And I think that might shock a lot of people because when they focus on, especially if you're a casual observer of the legal scene, you tend to focus only on the edge cases that make it to the Supreme Court, which, um, where things look like, well, you know, with some exceptions that if you listen to advisory opinions, you learned about. You feel like you can predict things based on who appointed, um, who appointed the, the justice. 
But that is not the bulk of the practice of law. The bulk of the practice of law actually, in my experience, involves a pretty even-handed application of precedent. And when the precedent is clear, the application of it becomes very predictable. So none of this surprises me at all. One thing that will be interesting to see is what happens to this on appeal, though. Uh, the Fifth Circuit is a pretty conservative court. A number of folks on it were in the administration of Governor Abbott, who signed the Reader Act into law. So uh, we'll see what happens. I do agree with you. I think that we tend to overemphasize things like the uh, appointing president when it comes to judges, especially district judges. And one other thing to note about district judges, the power with respect to district judges and appointment is sort of shared uh, to a greater degree than with the circuit courts between the president and the Senate. So sometimes somebody might nominally be a president of uh, an appointee of this Republican president, but maybe it was a Democratic senator pushing through or vice versa. Now, we're talking about Texas, which has had two Republican senators for, gosh, I don't know, forever. So, um, you know, I would not expect this Judge Albright to have been the product of any kind of deal uh, between a Democrat and a Republican. But um, again, I think it's interesting. And again, I think, as you point out, a lot of this is the application of a settled doctrine, which the district judge may or may not like, but they have to apply it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and it, it, I think you can really, there are certain tells as to whether, you know, the district court is kind of going rogue or not going rogue. Because one of the tells is, how do you frame the tests, for example? And if you're just very boringly conventional in your framing of the test, you can kind of figure out what's going to happen going forward. Now, again, doesn't mean that the edge cases are predictable. This one doesn't necessarily strike me as an edge case, David. Uh, it strikes me as the kind of case where even if you're, a, let's say, a judge who's sort of common good constitutionalist curious <laughs> would look at it would look at answers like i don't know how this is going to work i don't know i have you know that hasn't been thought through yet and it would really give them pause to be honest because i think if you're a shrewd common good constitutionalist judge you probably want better facts you know, if you're going to be pushing the law in a particular direction, you probably want better facts. This is not your, doesn't strike me as your vehicle. But of course, you know, we'll wait and see. The Fifth Circuit has been interesting on speech. Um, there's certainly a cohort on the Fifth Circuit, Judge Willett, among others, who are very speech protective, very speech protective. But the Fifth Circuit is also the circuit that is eh, kind of sort of defied the Supreme Court in you know, then the net choice social media um, moderation case. So I, I feel pretty confident the Fifth Circuit will uphold this, um, this lower court decision. But depending on the panel, I'm not 100%. But I still think it is, as a, as a general matter, a pretty speech protective circuit. There are enough problems with this law that I think you would, I forget what the the 
term is, but basically where everything has to break your way, like running a something around. I can't remember. There's a term or a, is it your bank shot in billiard? Like triple bank shot or something. Yeah. Like you kind of, there are enough problems with this. I don't think it was Judge Albright trying to bulletproof his ruling from appeal. I think there are just so many problems with this law, but you have a lot of problems. You have the problem of impermissibly, impermissibly vague standards. You have the problem of compelled speech. You have the problem of nobody knowing how the heck this thing is going to work. You have all these problems, and so this is a this is not a good uh, case to make a record on. But I believe that the again, I may be getting all of our First Amendment cases confused because we have so many of them today. But I believe yeah. the state has already said it's going to appeal this. I believe they've already filed their notice of appeal. So um, we're gonna. This is not the last we've seen of book people v. Wong. Yes, no, not the last of it. And speaking of cases that we're about to introduce that we will not hear the last of on this podcast <laughs> is. Our drag queen case. So <laughs> here we go. You know what, David? I never thought, I never in a million years thought that if you just rewound the clock to, you know, like the start of the Trump era, that I was going to talk so much about drag queens. <laughs> <laughs> that was not on my bingo card. Um, but here we are again. This case is called Spectrum versus Windler. It is in the Northern District of Texas, Amarillo Division. And I'll just read you some of the, the basic facts of the case here from, from the decision. Uh, plaintiffs are a recognized student organization at West Texas A&M and two of Spectrum's West Texas officers. The plaintiff strives to provide a safe space for LGBT plus students and allies to come together to raise awareness of the LGBT, LGBT plus community and to promote diversity, support, and acceptance on campus and in the surrounding community. So this is an organization with a viewpoint. In furtherance of that mission, so again, in furtherance of that viewpoint, in furtherance of that mission, Spectrum WT hosts events such as Lavender Prom, Queer History Night, and Queer Movie Night. Plaintiffs also planned a March 2023 fundraiser at a campus event hall to raise funds for LGBT plus suicide prevention. In papers filed with this court, plaintiffs described the proposed event as a drag show open to children accompanied by a parent or guardian. The proposed event was tentatively scheduled for April 1 and branded a fool's drag race. Due to a scheduling conflict, Spectrum agreed to hold the show one day earlier. But before it confirmed the event, the defendant, Walter Windler, stated his opposition in a letter that says, the school will not host a drag show on campus. In the letter, President Windler analogized to another type of theatrical performance, blackface minstrelry, to explain his opposition to any event exaggerating, stereotyping, mocking, or objectifying a person based on appearance, bias, or predisposition. And I'm reading now from the uh, from the letter. As a performance, exaggerating aspects of womanhood, sexuality, femininity, gender, Drag shows stereotype women in cartoon-like extremes for the amusement of others and discriminate against womanhood. Any event which diminishes an individual or group through such representation is wrong. Should I let rest misogynistic behavior portraying women as objects? Drag shows are derisive, divisive, and demoralizing misogyny no matter the stated intent. Such conduct runs counter to the purpose of WT, a person or group should not attempt to elevate itself or a cause by mocking another person or group. As a university president, I would not support blackface performances on our campus, even if told the performance is a form of free speech or intended as humor. It is wrong. I do not support any show, performance, or artistic expression which denigrates others, in this case women, for any reason. 
mocking or objectifying in any way members of any group based on appearance, bias, or predisposition is unacceptable. No one should claim a right to contribute to women suffering via a slapstick sideshow that erodes the worth of women. And humor becomes harassment and has gone too far. Okay, David, I would read that. And if I was a plaintiff's lawyer in free speech case, and I would think, judge, what we have here is an admission of viewpoint discrimination. (laughs) If you would like to just go ahead and issue the injunction against this, I would appreciate it. But what we would really appreciate is if you would go ahead and start calculating our attorney's fees for having to file this uh, this case in the event of obvious unconstitutional viewpoint discrimination. But that is not, David, what happened in this case. What happened in this case, at least so far, is that the judge sided with the university. And I knew (laughs) we were in trouble uh, when we got to the opening segment of the opinion. And I'll, I'll read it. Free speech jurisprudence only intermittently invokes the historical analysis applied to other amendments and clauses. And it talks about uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, applying this text history and tradition, uh, American Legion versus American Humanist Society, explaining that the Establishment Clause jurisprudence looks to history for guidance. Said historical analysis reveals a free speech ecosystem drastically different from the expressive conduct absolutism of plaintiff's briefing. One, the founders focused on prior restraints of publication, specifically political pamphlets, and two, draft free speech clauses focused on protecting the right to speak, to write, or to publish their sentiments. Blackstone treatises extolled freedom of thought and recognized the police power to censure licentiousness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found interesting about this uh, is this district court judge went on to essentially create a, his own test, really. It nodded, David, and tell me if you think I'm, I'm reading this incorrectly. It sort of nodded towards existing jurisprudence, but really sort of went back to what I would say as an analysis, a First Amendment analysis that a lot of folks in the new right urge which is sort of a text history and tradition kind of analysis for the First Amendment. And that, uh, that, that does actually take content and viewpoint into account. And it was a very strange opinion for, in my view, because essentially what the judge did is, is, is say, wait, this regulation on women, uh, men wearing women's clothing and engaging in behavior that is arguably lewd is not is not a prohibition on the basis of say content, and yet much of the opinion he's railing on the content, just like the president of the university railed on the content. So on the one hand he's saying it's not really a regulation that's based on content. On the other hand he's talking a lot about how bad the content is, and uh, rejected the plaintiff's case. So. I found this incredibly curious and odd as a bit of First Amendment analysis. And uh, also, by the way, out of step, uh, every other district court that has looked at one of these drag queen, drag queen prohibitions has struck it down. And it's happened multiple times. We stopped covering it on AO. It was so common. <laughs> it was 
It's like, oh, another court struck down a drag show ban. Um, am I being too harsh here? What, what's your what's your thought? No, I you know I like good controversy in a podcast as much as the next person, but I can't disagree <laughs> with you here, David. It seems that Judge Kaczmarek is almost nostalgic for her. Again, I, I'm you know I, I'm being a little crude here, but it's almost like, huh? What about the you know First Amendment from back in the Alien and Sedition Act era? Like he seems to basically <laughs> yes. hate everything post New York Times versus Sullivan. So I think we've seen this trend in the lower courts of trying to apply the text history tradition test to various rights. And sometimes they're almost anticipating the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is moving towards this THT analysis, as in Bruin, as in gun rights. And sometimes the lower courts hit the mark. Maybe they'll write a an opinion applying the standard jurisprudence, but then some conservative judge, like a Judge Newsom or a Judge Ho, will have a concurrence basically saying, that's the current jurisprudence, but if we were to do a THT analysis, we would get here, and then it goes up on appeal, and maybe, lo and behold, the Supreme Court does go there. I do not think this is going to be one of those decisions where the lower court applies a THT analysis, and then it goes up to SCOTUS, and SCOTUS says, oh yeah, you know, you've correctly anticipated us. This opinion is kind of a little crazy, and, you know, it just... it. You know, again, I'm just sort of baffled. Um, The First Amendment and First Amendment cases have long protected things like expressive conduct. Uh, Of course, there was a famous opinion that even Justice Scalia signed on to relating to flag burning. And yet here, Judge Kaczmarek, uh, whom you may remember as the judge in the Mifepristone cases, he's a very conservative judge who was involved in litigating various religious positions before taking the bench. Judge uh, Kaczmarek, is is basically I don't know it's like he's just almost ignoring all of this this precedent or or he wants to refashion he wants to create new uh, precedent but that's not his job as as a district court judge. Yeah, it's a really you know it, it's and if you know if you sort of know uh, some of the literature in the new right you can see where he was going almost immediately. So you know he at one point. He footnotes this uh, uh, this uh, professor at Grove City College uh, named Carl Truman, who's sort of a conservative Christian theologian slash philosopher, who I would say broadly uh, finds himself in the new right. I don't think he's an attorney. Uh, I, I, I'm not aware that he's an attorney, but he's absolutely somebody who is extremely uh, focused on LGBT issues and sort of scorns people in the Christian conservative world who seek to protect the civil liberties of LGBT folks and uh, protect LGBT expression. And so, you know, I could, I I kind of, as soon as I saw, as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh, (laughs) I know where this is going. And, but it does raise a really interesting question, and I'm sure listeners are just kind of sick of the THT, our text history and tradition conversation, because it's been a theme. But it's an important part of this discussion, I think, which is that um, it is it is a difficult test to apply, and as difficult as it is in the Second Amendment, in the First Amendment, David, I think it's a near impossibility for for this reason. One is that from the beginning, it was very, very clear that the First Amendment only applied to the federal government. 
And people come forward and they'll say to me, well, you know, a bunch of states had uh, anti-blasphemy laws, for example. So that means that the First Amendment does not prohibit an anti-blasphemy law. But those were those were state laws, David. Those were state laws. Uh, it would shock me if the First Amendment, under any sort of original public meaning analysis, would have allowed Congress to pass an a Congress to pass an anti-blasphemy law. It says Congress shall make no law, right? And so a lot of the early American analysis of free speech, I think just fundamentally misses the mark because at the time, the First Amendment was very specifically applicable to Congress. And so this sort of idea that we can go back to, say, 1811 Massachusetts and decide what free speech meant under the First Amendment is just broken from the get-go, just utterly broken from the get-go. And so it's a it seems to me that the THT analysis is just, it's hard under any circumstances. It's even harder here. Yes, no, absolutely. I do think the First Amendment is a tough area for originalists. I, I definitely agree with you there, uh, partly because, again, at the time of the founding, I think we did have very different ideas about what is speech that should be protected. It, it's It's a... It is, it is a, it's a difficult, uh, difficult issue, but there is a lot of gratuitous commentary in this opinion against drag, I would say. Um, he cites one group that has been very controversial, gays against groomers. They were not cited in the briefing. He just kind of went out and did his own research and cited them about all of their uh, anti-drag stuff, all of their uh, criticism of drag is inherently sexualized. And again, I know this is not germane to the First Amendment issue, but I do not view drag as inherently uh, sexualized or, or inappropriate for children. We had a little tiff or controversy in our little suburban New Jersey town, because for the Pride celebration this past June, there was going to be a drag performer. And then we heard that the drag performer had been canceled. And so there was a lot of uh, upset in the town because we thought, oh my gosh, is Summit, New Jersey, which is a pretty progressive community, becoming you know, the next uh, Texas or uh, something? Uh, it turned out that they just didn't like that particular drag performer because uh, she had a somewhat risque name. Uh, and they replaced her with another drag performer. Uh, and lots of families came to the family-friendly uh, pride event in Summit. And there was nothing sexualized about this drag performer. I think she wore a skirt down to her ankles. Like there was there was very little flesh reveal. There was no you know, gyration. There was, there was nothing sexually suggestive. So I think what you basically have to be saying is that it is inherently sexually suggestive to have men dressed in women's clothing or, or vice versa, which, I mean, heck, Shakespeare did, but I guess that has to be your position, that that's inherently sexualized, whether or not it is uh, risque or titillating or anything. Yeah, because, and this is something I've tried to impress upon people who say, what about the children, right? <laughs> is, look, um, indecent exposure laws apply to whether, no, no matter what, how you dress, right? Um, well, indecent exposure or not dress. <laughs> um, <laughs> so those kinds of law, laws involving obscenity, they apply no matter how, you know, whether you're a man in woman's clothing or a man in man's clothing or a woman in woman's clothing. There's a lot of neutral laws 
that uh, neutral with regard to sort of gender that protects people, the public at large, and also children from lewd acts and sort of obscene acts. And so this idea that if you don't ban drag drag shows, well, then the kids are just at the mercy of obscenity is completely wrong. There's already existing laws prohibiting things like obscenity, prohibiting things like indecent exposure, and you can enforce those laws. And so what are you left with? What you're left with in these kinds of analyses is that there's something quite specific about, you know, a a man putting on women's clothing that elevates this into a whole different category constitutionally, when in fact, the opposite is true, David, that if you're, you know, if somebody is engaging in drag as a kind of political slash cultural expression, it actually brings it within. It's, this is classic First Amendment protected expression. And they're getting the analysis, in my view, exactly backwards. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And so when he basically is trying to say that there is no content or message to drag performance, I, I don't see how that can be the case. All of the other opinions in this area, and they've come out of pretty diverse jurisdictions, and they've come from pretty diverse judges in terms of their politics, have talked about how drag is about questioning and complicating existing understandings of sexual orientation and gender and sexuality. So, of course, that is expressive conduct or symbolic speech or what have you. Of course, there is some content to that. It is not just, you know, again, uh, indecent exposure. It's not just running naked through the, the public square. There, there is actual content to that. You know, and it's interesting because again and again, the judge goes back to sort of the, what is, what is, the viewpoint, what is the content, what is the idea sort of being articulated here and then treats it as if it's not articulating an idea. And so, you know, he has this point and this is where he cites Truman. Many free speech categories were subject to reasonable time, place and manner restrictions, but beginning in the 20th century, or I'm sorry, beginning in the late 20th century, free speech jurisprudence absorbed expressive individualism as the new sine qua non of First Amendment analysis and my apologies if I mispronounced sin qua non, express it, and he cites Jeffrey Kaplan, and he cites uh, Carl Truman. So he's saying what we're dealing with is like this expressive individualism. These are people expressing themselves, expressing their ideas, expressing their challenges or to, you know, recognize gender norms, or maybe they're just, David, trying to be funny. You know, they're, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, you don't necessarily have to be making a, uh, you know, dissertation level <laughs> statement of your views for it to be protected by the First Amendment. We've sort of forgotten about things like camp or humor or, you know, trying to generate uh, an audience reaction. All of this is expressive. It's related to con- uh, your content of your expression. So it's a, it's a really, I mean, even with the Fifth Circuit, um, occasionally straying from sort of the general First Amendment line, it's really hard for me to see this being upheld on appeal. And I suspect it will go up. The students in this case are represented by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which you uh, led previously, FIRE. And they issued a statement saying, uh, quote, FIRE strongly disagrees with the court's approach to First Amendment analysis and its conclusions. We will appeal, and our fight for the expressive rights of these brave college students will continue 
close quote. So this is not going away. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right. Okay. So our fourth and final case. Um, this is Net Choice versus Bonta. And this was an injunction against California's AB 2733. Um, boy, David, when this case goes up and, and, you know, when there's a presum- presumably a Ninth Circuit ruling here, we'll probably want to just dive into all of the details of AB 2273, but we're running out of time. And I, and it's really complicated. Okay. But what is it? AB 2273 is called the Age Appropriate Design Code Act. Um, and this is a really broad restriction that is re- really aimed at this problem that we see. And it's a very real thing that people are concerned about, David, which is the impact of the internet and social media on the mental health of kids. Again, we're not going to give you the full summary of the act, but here's just a brief part of the decision. And it says this new California law law goes far beyond the scope of protections offered by federal and other state laws, for example. So whereas um, other California law limits the collection of user data by operators of websites and services directed by children, this new law declares that children should be afforded protections not only by online products and services specifically directed at them, but by all online products and services they are likely to access. Previous law protected children under the age of 13. New law goes all the way up to the age 18. Previous law gave parents the authority to make decisions about the use of their children's personal information. Um, The new law changes that authority. Uh, The new law requires online providers to create a data protection impact assessment, identifying for each service online product a feature likely to be accessed by children any risk of material detriment to children, et cetera. I mean, it is goes on and on. Providers must create a timed plan to mitigate or eliminate the risks identified before the online service product or feature is accessed by children. It's really broad. Um, and I, I'm not that interested in the analysis here and uh, as to why it was struck down. Essentially what happened here is that was a mix between commercial speech, which sort of has one kind of standard, uh, a much more lax standard of judicial review with more classic protected speech, which has the strictest layer of scrutiny. In that circumstance, the court says, when you've got this sort of hybrid, we're going to go with the stricter level of scrutiny. 
But there's one thing I want to talk about here and raise with you, David. And this is sort of advice to lawmakers. I, um, I have written, debated on AO about limitations on access of pornography, uh, children's access to pornography, recognizing that there is a real First Amendment issue there, not because kids have a right to see pornography, but because limiting children's access cannot excessively limit adults' access when adults have much broader rights than children in this context. This is something different. This is not just talking about pornography. This is talking about the kind of information that kids arguably not only have a right to consume, to see, but to produce, to make. Uh, And so this idea that you can sort of say, well, okay, once we're talking about for the children, then it's kind of the magic wand that waves away the First Amendment is just fundamentally wrong. And that, in fact, a lot of the regulation of the internet as applied to children is going to run into constitutional problems the instant putting aside the complexity and difficulty of applying that we've already talked about in previous circumstances of applying a rule for kids without excessively injuring adult rights. Here, what's really different, uh, David, to me is you're actually talking about, say, the state is saying, well, on, on net net, we think the internet is kind of bad for kids or aspects of it are bad for kids. And we're just going to kind of bulldoze into that. And then on the other hand, sort of the kids through their counselor saying, we've got rights in this context, not just the adults. I think that's a big difference here. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, just a f- yeah, in terms of some clarifications, I think you mentioned the issue of the standard for commercial versus non-commercial speech. Here, the judge, Judge Freeman, said that even if you apply the lower level of scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, even assuming arguendo, that's the standard that applies, this law is still insufficiently tailored to advance the state's interest in protecting minors online. And she acknowledges I'll quote from her opinion, quote, the myriad harms that may befall children on the internet, close quote. So again, people always say, what about the children? Well, she's not unmindful of the children. It's just this law is not sufficiently tailored, especially in terms of protecting the rights of uh, adults uh, as well. The other thing I would just point out, again, sort of picking up on what you were saying earlier is there are various laws floating around right now about age verification and uh, such that we talked about a couple on this pod before. There was uh, last month uh, one in a preliminary injunction of Arkansas's law. There was also a preliminary injunction of Texas's law. And this case, Net Choice v. Bonta, also av- arises in the preliminary injunction context. But you do have to look at what is being regulated. So the Arkansas law applies fairly broadly to social media, whereas the Texas law focuses on pornographic websites. And so I think it is going to be harder if you are trying to regulate social media or the internet more broadly, like the Arkansas and California laws versus pornography, which was the target of the Texas age law. Right. And I do think, and you know, a lot of my First Amendment friends have been a little bit peeved at me over the arguments I've made about pornography and kids. Um, And I think that's, we're actually replaying a lot of the arguments that I remember, David. I'm, I'm, I'm still older than you, both you and Sarah. <laughs> so, um, 
that I remember from going all the way back to law school in the early 90s that were playing out over offline pornography. Free speech advocates kind of split in that world as well. So, you know, the secondary effects doctrine, which applies in that world, has been very controversial within free speech circles, for example. So in many ways, you're seeing a rerun of that argument um, and it will continue to play out. But what's the main thrust of that argument often deals with technical realities, such as, for example, someone saying to me, David, you're crazy if you think you can create a regime online that protects kids from accessing pornography that isn't also extremely intrusive to adults. Um, that I'm just wrong, that as a matter of sort of technical reality, and, and um, you know, the court may very well say, well, in theory, you can apply some of these offline principles to the online world, but we're just not there yet, or it's just too much, it's just too difficult. So that that's one kind of issue. This other, th- this case is really not that at all. <laughs> and it, and it really goes to this issue of, okay, when can the state decide that speech that's otherwise protected is so harmful to say minors that we're going to just walk in and start to regulate? And there's just not a lot of evidence. Unless, for example, you own, the government owns the airwaves, say, and you're going to, you know, limit nudity uh, in broadcast television. But again, that's when the government is owning the airwaves. Uh, there's just not a lot of evidence that you can sit there and say, okay, well, we've deemed that this speech that would be otherwise constitutionally protected, even as applied to kids, is sort of now too too rough on them. It's now too tough on them. Um and I think the opinion was interesting when it highlighted that previous le- uh, legislative tools gave more power to parents. This gives more power to the state. I think one thing to keep in mind whenever you look at these First Amendment uh, cases is who, of course, you have to think about who is the speaker. And I think you also have to think about who is the would-be censor because you have a lot of situations where, okay, one, you know, maybe it's the government. Or maybe it's a private actor that the government is trying to conscript, whether it is a bookseller in the book people case, or whether it's a social media or online company in uh, these cases, like the ones uh, involving NetChoice. And so it is, you do have to kind of tease out or figure out what is going on here. There are issues about compelled speech. We talked about the social media and cases involving content moderation. Uh, We talked about the case uh, involving the uh, Biden administration's attempts to get social media companies to do certain things. So it is sometimes very tricky to figure out who is the actor here, but you do need to tease that out because the standards and the analysis will depend on who is the entity that is out there trying to regulate or control or uh, quote unquote censor the speech. Uh, and again, this is a net choice case. Net choice has been very active. It's an industry association or a trade group and its members include a lot of the big tech companies, Amazon, Alphabet, aka Google, uh, Meta, aka Facebook. And we will, uh, we're waiting for this. This week will be the Supreme Court's long conference where they look at all these petitions that have piled up and decide what they're going to hear. And they almost surely will hear those net choice cases coming out of the fifth and 11th circuits where the circuit courts reach divergent conclusions on these Texas and Florida laws, which have a lot of similarities 
in terms of requiring social media con- uh, companies not to uh, quote unquote censor the views of conservative speakers. But that, of course, rubs up against the first the platform's rights to regulate the speech that appears uh, on uh, you know on their bandwidth. So that's going to be very very interesting. I'm sure the Supreme Court will agree to hear it. The Solicitor General's office has urged the Supreme Court to hear it. And again, you have a circuit split. You have uh, major laws out of two of the largest states in the country. You have interesting, naughty constitutional issues. So that will be very, very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, do we need to disclose when it's just you and me that husband of the pod, husband of the pod, Scott Keller, Sarah's husband is, uh, and represents net choice in, uh, is it both? Is it the 5th and the 11th? Um, he represents them in one, and I think maybe Paul Clement represents them in the other. And so people are wondering, oh, who will get the opportunity to argue that case? Uh, will they divide the time? I don't know. It'll be very, very interesting. I'm rooting for Scott to argue it. <laughs> His most recent case, he won at SCOTUS. He won the OSHA case at SCOTUS. Yes, so that was a huge case. Huge case. So arguing for go, Scott, go uh, on both the outcome, in my view, and also in arguing it. but. Yeah, we, we, we will see. Uh, before we go, uh, David, I was really intrigued by your newsletter uh, and you named Judge Pauline Newman, who fact check I be, uh, is 96 years old, not the 3,000 I indicated <laughs> earlier, uh, 96 years old, involved in a fight over her future um, and her circuit. And she's on the federal circuit and her colleagues are essentially trying to force her retirement, which is a really interesting issue that I don't think we're paying enough attention to because everyone sort of looks at it and says, you're 96, of course, right? Um, <laughs> but there are broader issues here. So you, you named Judge Pauline Newman Judge of the Week uh, in Original Jurisdiction, which if you're not subscribed to, subscribe to it. Walk us through. Why is she judge of the week? <laughs> yeah, so I do these weekly legal news roundups uh, every week for original jurisdiction. And I go through different categories like lawyer of the week and judge of the week because I find it is a useful way to organize the information. And this week, I highlighted Judge Newman, who I think was in many ways the most talked about judge. And the reason is that her battle with her colleagues on the federal circuit, which hears uh, a wide range of federal cases, but mainly I think it's best known for its patent stuff. Her conflict with her colleagues in the federal circuit has reached a new stage. Her colleagues issued a unanimous order suspending her for one year, basically keeping her off the bench and not allowing her to hear cases for one year. And this is basically taking away somebody's federal judgeship, essentially, without any kind of impeachment or s- process along those lines. It arises under the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, which is this 1980 law, which is supposed to allow courts to remove or or temporarily suspend colleagues who have engaged in misconduct or are unable to function. And the act provides that judges can be barred from hearing cases, quote, on a temporary basis for a time certain, close quote. But this is a one-year order that is renewable. So, it does raise the prospect of Judge Newman never being able to hear cases again. And I am less interested in the merits of whether or not Judge Newman, who is, as you mentioned, 96, is on the ball or not. Uh, There's conflicting evidence on that. Uh, Some people say she is really sharp. Other people say, no, she's out of it. 
But I, what I was just really troubled by, and I've written about this before in original jurisdiction, is how this case was not transferred to the Judicial Council of Another Circuit, because there is so much inside baseball here. It is clear that there's a lot going on in terms of grudges and personal relationships between Judge Newman and her colleagues. And in situations where a circuit judge's conduct is on uh, under scrutiny, things typically get referred to another court. But the federal circuit declined to refer this, and they did the investigation, and they then just issued their order suspending Judge Newman. She's going to appeal this to the basically the Judicial Conference of the United States. So now, finally, some outside eyes will look at it. But I was just really troubled from a due process perspective about how this case involving a bunch of circuit judges trying to oust their colleague, a colleague who is known for her frequent dissenting in that court. I was just troubled by why they didn't send this to a, an objective uh, other circuit. I would not really be so troubled by the outcome if another circuit conducted the investigation and signed off and said, look, uh, Judge Newman is unfortunately, despite her decades of contributions to the federal bench, unable to discharge her duties. That would be one thing if another court did it. And this uh, failure to send the case to another circuit has been condemned by a bunch of judges, including two former chief judges of the federal circuit and also former chief judge of the Fifth Circuit, Edith Jones. So I think a lot of us are troubled by just the process and, again, not about the, the substance. And one, one small point to make, technically, this proceeding is not because she is unable to discharge her duties. They narrowed the complaint. They are now going after her and suspending her for a year because she refused to submit to a medical examination. And Judge Newman, through her lawyers, has said, I will submit to a medical examination, but you need to transfer this case first so that it is not not all under the control of my colleagues with whom I clearly have issues. Yeah, it, you know, you raise it. This raises a good sort of meta point about due process, because to what extent do we trust institutions, especially public institutions, to engage in self-policing? Now, sometimes it's kind of, it's very difficult to avoid given the separation of powers and the structure of our system that, for example, Congress is going to set its own rules. Um, and it's and you're going to have it to an extent to which the judiciary is going to police the judiciary. But to the greatest extent possible, self-policing is a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, to the greatest extent possible, limit self-policing because it's fundamentally a bad idea as only thousands of years of human history illustrate. And when you think about it, there's not that many institutions in, in American life that are truly self-policed as much as the judiciary is. Now, the judiciary, and, and I'm not saying that I think the judiciary is functioning quite well compared to other branches of government. So, I, But when it comes to this issue of accountability and, police, and policing itself, there, there's just too much sort of latitude given to each individual circuit, in my view. So I, I, I think that's the right formulation. I don't think it's that disruptive at all to any of the circuits, although I'm, I'm very open to, you know, a, a listener providing argument to the contrary. But transferring this, this dispute over to another circuit doesn't strike me as terribly burdensome. Um, and, you know, look, again, I'll, I'll say this again. I've said it a million times. I think our, the federal judiciary is our best functioning branch of government. Um, but self-policing makes you vulnerable. Um, it makes you vulnerable. And, 
And if we want to improve trust, and in many ways, improve trust in a way that will allow people to actually see and recognize how healthy the institution is overall, I, I think um, I think your analysis is really sound. Sorry, you know, this has not been the David and David disagree show. <laughs> well, I'll just make one point to give the other side its due. The order does go into why they decided not to transfer this. And they claim that, one, there were no exceptional circumstances. But pretty much every other circuit that has had a situation involving a circuit judge uh, being under scrutiny has viewed that as exceptional circumstances. It's different when a district or magistrate judge is reviewed. And in those cases, the circuit courts have been happy to handle the matter themselves. But when it's a bunch of circuit judges reviewing actions by a fellow circuit judge, that usually does get sent out. So I don't understand their their denial of exceptional circumstances. And then the second argument they make, which goes to your self-policing point, is they say, well, we are so much better to equip to handle this because we're dealing with Judge Newman day to day. We're in the trenches. We know all about her. But that is the whole argument about why we have recusal and why we have transfer and how why we have the principle that no person should be a judge in their own case. In most cases, if you're the fact finder and the adjudicator, we don't want you to have firsthand personal knowledge of the players and of the facts. It will be like a judge who has a case before her involving allegations of sexual harassment at her former firm. And she says, well, you know, I should handle this case and not recuse because this is my former firm. I practiced with these people for years. I'm in the trenches. I know these people better than anyone else. We don't want the judge bringing their personal knowledge and personal opinions to the dispute. We want somebody who's a blank slate who's going to review this fairly and objectively. So I just found the argument of the federal circuit that, well, we know Judge Newman the best. We know how terrible she is because we're dealing with her day to day. That's the whole point why you would want to recuse. And again, one final point on this. It's not necessarily about impartiality. Let's assume that Chief Judge Kimberly Moore and her colleagues can investigate impartially. It's about the appearance of impartiality. And Judge Newman has been called the great dissenter of her court. She frequently disagrees with her colleagues. And so to have all of them trying to exile the great dissenter uh, of their court uh, without any outside check, that that does seem like a bad example of self-policing. Yeah, well, thus endeth this podcast of agreement. <laughs> David, I uh, really appreciate you filling in for Sarah. And when I, and it'll be see you later, not goodbye, um, which I know from the feedback from the listeners is a good thing. They do not want it to be a goodbye. They just want it to be a see you later. And again, can't emphasize enough uh, our gratitude for you filling in. And um, yeah, as I said at the beginning, you've been so good at it. I'm like slightly bitter that everyone loves the <laughs> podcast because of you. So I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and an honor, but I will say I look forward to the return of Sarah and to uh, sitting back and relaxing and uh, listening to uh, the two of you break down the legal news of the day. So again, thank you so much. It's It's been wonderful. Well, thanks very much, listeners, as always. And our next podcast will be the return of Sarah Isker live in person, Georgetown University Law School. So I'm really looking forward to that. And so you'll hear from us again uh, on Thursday. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.